The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, and anybody else I may have missed, to the Sons of Liberty Radio Show here on Red State Talk Radio. If the volume is a little low, it should come back up in a minute. I, at least I hope it will. <laughs> I'm having a little bit of trouble this morning. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina. For our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us this morning i got a special guest online, and we're going to get to him in just a moment. Uh, if you want to check us out online, please do so. Go to sonsoflibertyradio.com or sonsoflibertymedia.com. You can be able to watch the face that's made for radio right there. Uh, in fact, you've got two of them, uh, me and, and my guest <laughs> with me this morning. Uh, you can go to sonsoflibertymedia.com. You can scroll down there on the right, and you'll be able to see uh, the video portion of the radio show. You can also watch that live feed on Twitter at FPPTim, FPPTim on Twitter. Our Facebook page is Bradley Dean SOL. Uh, our YouTube channel is B Dean Sons of Liberty. And you can also catch us on BeforeIt'sNews.com every weekday morning at 6 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern. Bradley's on in the afternoons every weekday. And then on Saturdays, he's on for two hours there. You can also catch us on DLive. Dot TV at the Sons of Liberty, the Sons of Liberty on DLive.tv. And then you can also, if you're spreading out your branches over new territory in the social media sphere, we're on Spreely, Gab, MeWe, Minds, and USA.life at Sons of Liberty or Sons of Liberty Media.com. Now, I know my volume is running low. So be patient with me because I don't know if it's a board issue. I don't know if it's a, a computer issue. I have no idea of why there would be a problem with it. Uh, but for whatever reason, it goes down by itself, and now it's coming up. So I can, I can tell that it's coming up a little bit. And with that going on, uh, I want to introduce you to a good friend of mine, longtime friend. We used to blog together and um, do a lot of things uh, back and forth. We never actually met in person but we've had numerous conversations. Um, he's a brother that's encouraged me greatly over the years. Uh, he's a prolific writer. And I brought him on because he has a book that I want to talk about because I think it's relevant in these times that we're living in. He's the pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, <laughs> New Mexico. That's a little strange name for me there. Uh, my friend is Gordon Runyon. And uh, Gordon, I want to welcome you here to the Sons of Liberty, man. 
Hey, good to see you, man. Yeah, figuratively good. speaking. Yeah, good to see you hey, too. Good to see you too. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Hey, you talked about having a face made for radio. I like to say, in in addition to that, I've got a voice made for pantomime, and uh, <laughs> it doesn't really work. Well, no, I I like your voice. I I've listened to you preach, and uh, and and of course our talking, and uh, I think it. I think it. I think you ought to have your own radio show. I'm just going to tell you. But I'm I'm bringing you on. Oh wow! I'm bringing you on because one of the things that we constantly get, and, and we're faced with it right now, and we'll talk a little bit about this in a practical application near the end of the show. But one of the books that you've written, and you wrote it several years ago, uh, and when I was over at Freedom Outpost, we we promoted it, uh, is this book, Resistance to Tyrants, and um, right. this is a real. It, in my opinion, when people say, well. What's going on here, you know, that, uh, you know, I've been taught to obey the powers no matter what they say or what they do. And doesn't doesn't Romans 13 tell us to do this and that? And this is the way we honor God is by submitting even to tyrants and stuff. And when you get to asking them practical questions about how far they're willing to submit in that, you find out that not too many people really want to go that route. And so there's a context there. And I think you've done one of the best jobs that I've seen for to make it easy for people to understand what's going on there. And so uh, tell people just a little bit about yourself and then um, tell them how you came to write this, write this book. And then we'll, we'll take it from there. Well, uh, there's really not a lot to tell. There's not much that's terribly remarkable about me. And I uh, was saved by grace in the Lord in, through in the Lord Jesus Christ in 1989. And uh, Almost <laughs> with uh, not much, not much help from me, God has turned into a preacher, and so I've been a I've been preaching for about twenty years. I've been the pastor of this church here for a little bit over ten, and all that happened was I started noticing the same sort of things that you just talked about. There's there does seem to be a lot of confusion, and there was back then. I believe when I wrote it, it was in the context. I'm old enough now. I don't remember the date offhand, but I think the context was that President Obama was just now coming into office. And there were a lot of people who were flat out scared, you know, that he was going to ban churches or ban preaching against homosexuality. Or there was just a little bit of fear associated with that. And uh, I just thought it might be a good thing to just kind of put down some basic street level stuff. I don't consider myself a scholar. I, if anything, I'm a popularizer. I enjoy reading the scholars. And if you find anything good in that book, it's not anything I came up with. It's just, it's just me taking it and bringing it down to normal person level and uh, trying to make it clear. And uh, it's just gratifying that a lot of people have found it helpful. Yeah, well, I think the thing that you're talking about, it reminds me of, uh, you know, the great scholar John Owen, and uh, he loved to go hear John Bunyan preach. And uh, John Bunyan was a tinker, and they were like, oh, you're an educated man. Why do you want to go listen to this tinker? And he says, because, look, he he can get the people's attention, and they listen to him. And I think that's one of the things that that I like about your writing. Uh, Several of your books I've read. I I don't know that I've read all of them, but I've read several of your books. And uh, they're easy to understand. You communicate the truths 
that it, it may take a scholar. He has to go and say, well, no, this Greek word does this. And he's breaking down the syntax and all of these things. And I look, I love stuff like that. I really do. But when you're trying to get at a, sure. at a subject and maybe you're a person who you, that's not your thing, you're not for the scholarly language and all that. I think you use some of that in there, but it's very minimal. It's to help yep. people understand exactly what's said so they can obey it. I mean, it's it's pretty simple. And uh, and so I like that style of writing. That's why I recommend when people have this question, they go, you need to get uh, Gordon's book, Resistance to Tyrants. It's very short. It covers this issue. It presents you with practical application. It asks questions of you. So you ha- you think through it. You come to the conclusion yourself. It's not Gordon saying, hey, this means this, so you just got to go do that. You're helping people to come to their own conclusions. So when we get to something like Romans 13, and I'm just going to put up uh, on the screen for those who are uh, watching, and uh, I'm going to do it in the new King Jimmy um, so that we can kind of read this little section here, and then I want to turn it over to you for some comments on it. So it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes, to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Now, people will look at you, Gordon, and they'll go, hey, it's right there. I've got to do this, but there, but there are things in the middle that I know you're going to say, here's the caveat. So tell people a little bit, walk them through the passage and give them those caveats to help them understand what's being said. Okay. Well, they're, they're really two big things, two big ideas that I think if we get them down and they're pretty easy ideas, I think if we keep these things in mind, it'll really put this, uh, help it fit in its proper place. The first thing I would admit is, Man, this looks straightforward. How am I going to come on here and tell you something other than just do what they say? Uh, that That is kind of what it looks like. And I would admit that if the Bible didn't really say anything else or never really modeled anything else when it comes to the relationship of the faithful in Christ or the believer in God between that set and the government, if this was all we had, Romans 13, 1 through 7, uh, man, it might look like we're really being made slaves of whatever the government has to say. But one of the points that I tried to make in the book uh, right at the beginning was just to point out, we don't really treat any text in the Bible like that, like it exists on its own and it stands on a little island over here. We're not supposed to anyway. I believe that the whole Bible is the Word of God equally inspired? And I also believe that part of that inspiration results in all of the Bible agreeing and fitting together and, and working in harmony. And once we understand that, we're going to see that, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the narratives in the New Testament, 
we have many, many examples of the people of God uh, being confronted by and confronting themselves uh, wicked rulers who are in opposition to God. And you cannot then come to Romans 13 after all that narrative has passed by. You can't suddenly come here and forget everything that has gone before. So my point is, I don't think Romans 13 is instituting a new rule about how uh, the people of God are supposed to interact with the government. It's really kind of explaining and summarizing what has always been true and what we see demonstrated really throughout the scripture. I hope that makes sense. No, it, it does. Now, can you give a couple of examples when you say, okay, this is all throughout scripture, uh, that we yeah. have to we have to look to. So, what are some of the things? What would be a couple of examples where you would say, okay, um, if you think that you just submit to the tyrant, what would be where would be some examples you might point to people to say, okay, here was here was a tyrant who defied God's law, and the people didn't submit to him. They actually rejected what he said, or maybe worse. I don't know. Can you give some examples there? Yeah, sure. Some of them come really easy, and it'll take you back to your old. Sunday school classes and the flannel boards and all that. But uh, think of the Hebrew midwives in Egypt. And you remember what Pharaoh told them to do, uh, commit, commit infanticide, murder all the Hebrew babies or the Hebrew boys at least. And they didn't, they didn't have anything to, <laughs> they weren't going to be doing that. And not only did they disobey Pharaoh's command, they deceived him when he asked about it. And then in the New Testament, they get praised. They make it into the hall of fame of faith. And the proof of their faith was their willingness to disobey this unjust rule. And yeah. not only that, but to deceive the tyrant. And uh, uh, if you believe in meticulous obedience to just whatever the government says, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow. But it's not just that it happens. It's important to say it's not just that we see them doing it and we see good things working out because of it. But they get praised in the New Testament, Hebrews 11. They're, they're right there. They're heroes for what they did. And there's Rahab who hid the spies. The, the king sent agents to come look for the uh, Israelites. And she deceived that king as well and hid the spies under the flax. And really, what was the king doing bad there? <laughs> well, I mean... If a king thinks there are spies in his country, it seems to me he's got every right to try to root those guys out. So the order itself wasn't a tyrannical order, but the king himself was set in opposition to God. And God had already declared Jericho is one of these places that's under the ban and it's going to be destroyed. So uh, Rahab as well gets praised in the New Testament. So it's not left up to us to him and haw and decide well, yeah, she it worked out okay, but maybe if she had told the truth, it would have worked out better. We don't get to say that because the New Testament comes along uh, in the book of James specifically here. And, and what that tells us is that what she did was actually a demonstration of faith. It was her works demonstrating her faith. And actually, that's an example that we're given to follow. And you find many more, Daniel and his friends in Babylon and their uh, refusal to carry out or refusal to obey the orders to worship false gods and things of that nature. I was just thinking today, uh, 
I was just thinking today a little bit about the prophet Jeremiah. And when Babylon had come and surrounded Jerusalem and they're about to destroy it, Jeremiah is preaching a message that had to be like the most unpatriotic thing anybody had heard. Do you remember what he said? Yeah, he was telling. He, <laughs> he told was him. telling Jeremiah's message to everybody inside Jerusalem is the only way you're going to survive. The only way you're going to escape the wrath of God is if you surrender and go submit yourself to the king of Babylon. And he's saying this even to soldiers on the walls. They're hearing him preach this. These are the guys who are defending the city. And he's preaching these things in, in their hearing. He preached it directly to the face of the king and said to that guy, you can still save the city. You can save yourself. You can save your family. You can save this whole place if you will go and submit to the king of Babylon. That'd be like a prophet standing up in America right now and saying, hey, the only way we're going to get out of this COVID-19 thing is if we all swear allegiance to China. I mean, you can imagine how that message would be received. It would be received as like the most unpatriotic, seditious, blasphemous nonsense that you ever heard. And that's kind of what Jeremiah did. And uh, you can see in that book, the ruling authorities there absolutely considered it a subversive uh, anti-government <laughs> ministry that he was carrying on there. Do you, do you want more or are we okay? No, I think that, I think those are good examples uh, that people can see. And a part of what we're dealing with too is that you can find somebody even like David. I mean, he can resist Saul, he can resist Saul over and over and over, even though Saul is acting wickedly. And David has the opportunity to kill him. He cuts off a piece of his cloak to show him he had the opportunity. And David's heart's even broken that he, he, cut, off, that he cut off the guy's robe, but he still resists what he's doing. He, he, he's, what, what have I done to you? And, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And he shames Saul in front of his men, and Saul would repent, and then he goes right back to doing the same thing he was doing before. And so even in that, King David is res is resisting those things. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty with uh, some stuff coming back and forth. All right, so let's let's take to the text itself. And I don't know why we're okay. having we're having a little bit of, of technical stuff that's coming through here. I'm getting a little bit of... Uh, I don't know some weird gremlins or something that's in our system. I don't know what's going on, uh, but we'll try. We'll try to get past that. Let's take a couple of, of sections here, um, because one of the things that 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 you made so simple for people to understand is when you talk about. I think it was in verse three, and I don't have your book open here. But one of the things you talk about is rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil ones. So the obvious question is. When somebody is in a position of authority as the minister of God, and yes, they are that, even in the um, the civil government, they, they answer to God. They're supposed to uphold God's law even above the Constitution in our, in our country. And so if you've got a ruler who's bringing terror to those who do good, but he's letting, oh, I don't know, we can give current examples. He's letting evil people out of jail. He's rewarding evil people. He's right. stealing your money and giving it to evil people. <laughs> I'm not going to call names, but you know, you know who I'm talking about. If he's doing those things, that's the exact opposite of this. So how how would you how how did how did you uh, convey what's going on there when you put that kind of a, a position up uh, for people to consider? Well, that's a good question. It 
it really just boils down to if you look at how government is referred to in the whole passage, there's never a place where it's referring to a particular ruler. Uh, it's always kind of referring to government in theory, as if God is saying, look, this is the purpose of government. I'm not describing for you right now Caesar's government, but I'm telling you why, even as people who have been set free from the old covenant and set free from sin and from the threat of death, there still are some authorities. And and it's not that you are without any kind of restraint anymore. And one of the little restraints in your life is legitimate authority that's been placed over you. And and so what you see in that passage is that the the authorities are referred to as the servants or the deacons of God. And for me, that's very important because if then in verse three, if they're not supposed to be a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil, then we ask that, have to ask the question, they're God's servants. Whose definitions of good and evil should they be using? I don't see how any other answer makes any sense other than, well, if they're God's servants, they've got to be using God's definitions. Uh, that makes sense to me. I'm a simple man, but it sure doesn't seem to me that there's anything in the passage that gives the government some kind of blank check to just make it up as they go along. They're the deacons, the servants of God. And uh, uh, let's see, I think one thing that I wanted to point out here, sometimes one of the things that you will hear is, well, but those first century Romans, the people who first read the book of Romans, they were living under Caesar and he was a super bad guy. And see, God's still telling them that Caesar is his deacon. And I point out, no, that that can't even be the case unless you're willing to say that Paul was a false prophet. And I know that strikes people as a little bit eye-opening there, or what are you even talking about? But look what he says there. Do you want, verse 3, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. He'll praise you. But we know historically what happened, that the Christians in Rome did good. They served God, and Caesar strung them up and set them on fire and called them Roman candles. He lit his garden parties with the burning bodies of Christians who had done good. And Caesar certainly used the sword against the Christians in Rome. So my point is, this isn't talking about Caesar. It's talking about the purpose of government. It's to establish the authority of God. He's God's minister. He's instituting God's wrath against those who do what is wrong. And he's got to be doing it by God's definitions. I don't see any other option in the text. No, I don't either. And I can just see some people right now, okay? And you've had them too. I've had them over the years. And they'll say stuff like, well, Gordon, well, wait a minute. We're not electing a pastor-in-chief, right? You've heard that com that little comment. Because you, you said, uh, you used the term deacon. Where, I mean, that's the English translation for diakonos, the, the servant or the minister of God that we read in the passage, depending on what your translation is. And there's only, by the way, if anybody's listening, you think, well, there's different Bibles. No, there's different translations, but the Bible comes to us in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so it's as God gave it, uh, he, as he inspired it to uh, those who were moved by the Holy Spirit, as P Peter says. So they'll come to you and they'll say, Gordon, we don't elect a pastor in chief. We're electing somebody over here. 
Now, my immediate response right. to that, Gordon, is so what you're saying is you have a lower standard for those in, who serve in the civil sphere than you do those in your church. And I, I say, now think about that just for a moment. Because if we were to go, let's say, to the deacon, um, and we were to look at passages like, uh, what is it, First Timothy 3, um, and I didn't, I was going to pull this up a minute ago, and I started talking, and I didn't bring it up. So let's, we pull up First Timothy 3, and in First Timothy 3, we have qualifications for overseers. And that's in verses one through seven. But let's take the, the, the term that you, that you use, that you translated out, deacons. So the qualifications for deacons are deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them serve and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So when somebody would come to you, Gordon, and they would say, we're not electing a pastor in chief, or maybe they would know this pastor and they would say, we're not electing a deacon in chief. What would be your response to someone like that? Well, I would say amen. We're, we're not electing a pastor. We don't even want the president necessarily to be any kind of preacher. But we do want him to be in subjection to God. In the, uh, in the American experiment, we have decided to explicitly separate the church from the state. And I think that's a concept you get in the scripture. These are two different spheres of authority. The king has his role over here. The priest had his role over here. And they couldn't tell each other, they couldn't command each other, but they did encourage each other. You see it throughout the history of the kings in Israel. Kings and priests and prophets all encouraged each other in the service of God when they were doing right. And so I would say, yeah, the president, uh, he's not subjected to the church, but he is subjected to God. And he will answer how, for how he uses the authority that God gave him. So, uh, and there's only one standard. There's only one standard of righteousness, which is God himself. And it's been revealed in the word of God. There's no other way. There's no other standard for good and evil. So uh, when it says that the, that the governor is supposed to be a minister of God to you for good, he may not be a pastor and he may not be a minister within the church but that doesn't mean he has no ministry. <laughs> it just means he's got a different kind of ministry and he's responsible to the same God. Yeah. And I would agree with that. We we're not electing a pastor in chief and things of that nature. So I appreciate you clarifying that. But at the same time, you know, there, there is an issue to where these men ought to, when we elect them, when we, if people go and cast a vote, should they not be looking of, for men of good character of what God says um, that, that should be for his servants? I mean, should they not be looking? I mean, all of us have sinned, no question about that, some more than others, okay? And in that, we all can understand that. But what, what should people be looking for when, they, when they're asked to, I don't know, vote for a representative, a senator, somebody in local city council or 
a school board or whatever, or a president, should they not be looking for men of character? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that passage that you just read, I, I really think uh, civil governors uh, really should qualify as elders. Uh, just to be honest with you, I think there's a continuity in the Bible between Old Testament elders and New Covenant elders. I don't think there's supposed to be this great disjunction between what their jobs are. It's just that in the Old Covenant, uh, church and state were kind of intermingled. And so in the Old Covenant, you have many, uh, many places where we talk about qualifications of those who rule over men. And those who rule over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. And then that passage that you just read in first in uh, first Timothy, even for the deacon, it says the deacon has to hold the mystery of the faith with a good conscience. You're talking about a Christian person there and you're talking about the rest of what it said there. You're talking about a man who has demonstrated over the long haul, a life of servants and service and obedience and, uh, Attaining a good reputation among the faithful. Uh, I don't think you elect a baby Christian. I don't think you elect a non-Christian. I absolutely believe it's got to be somebody whose life has demonstrated uh, faithfulness over the long haul. Not perfection, but faithfulness. I hear a lot of the time people saying, well, Jesus isn't running for office, so we have to vote for the lesser of two evils. And my point is, the Bible doesn't demand that we vote for Jesus or vote for somebody who is as righteous as Jesus. Of course, that's not going to happen. But the passage you just read, it does set a bar. We're supposed to vote for somebody who clears that bar. And to be honest, it's not a super high bar. It's just you want to find somebody who has spent some years in the faith proving that they're genuine in their faith and, and really trying to get things right. It's not a high bar, but it is a bar. And you need to find somebody who crosses over that. Yeah, and sadly, we can't, you know, when, when this kind of conversation comes up, people will say they don't even want a bar set, apparently, because you say, well, then what standard do you have that right. you set? And and they go, well, you right. know, whoever has this, you know, that, you know, this stuff, I, if you got the stone, throw it, you know, if you're without sin. And that's not even what this is about. It's about saying there's a standard here. And, um, you know, one of the things that I'm reminded of, and I, and, and again, I know what people will say. They'll go, well, this is Old Testament Israel. Yeah, but the Bible, the New Testament tells us that when judgments came to the, to the children of Israel, they were for an example to us. And I think all of the scripture uh, in the Old Testament is an example to us of, of what we should look to. So when you go to places like um, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. And one of the things that you find is, is when the king comes in verse 18, he says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law. Well, what law is he talking about? The constitution? No, he's talking about the law of God, right? And it's got to be approved by the Levitical priest. So this would, this would be them working together to say, yes, this is the law of God. This is what it says. These are just laws and there's just punishments when those laws are broken. And then it says, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to what? Fear the Lord his God by keeping the words, keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up against his brothers. That's tyranny. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment. That's the lawlessness, which is tyranny. 
either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So, you know, I just, I guess I don't understand it among Christians. I, I think I can understand it maybe somebody outside the faith. But when you have professed Christians who, who just disregard all of this, this example that God has given us and the commands that he gave even among his people, which we are his people too. I mean, anybody who reads Ephesians 2 knows that Gentiles were brought in and we were made what? Citizens of Israel. And so do these things not apply? What would you say to something like this? Would you think it a, a good thing? That if we elect a, a representative or senator, pre- look, we don't have it written in the Constitution, but do, would you think it a good thing that people would want to know, hey, do you even know the Ten Commandments? Can we get a basic thing out of that? Uh, do, have you been running around on your wife? Uh, what do your kids look like that you, that you raised? Um, are, you know, are you, a, are you just a drunkard? Can we check out some of these things? Do you think that that's a good thing, right? Oh, absolutely. And... Uh... A lot of people have pointed out that the original colonies in America, when they became states, they uh, wrote into their individual constitutions, all but one of them, wrote into their individual constitutions uh, explicit statements of Christian faith. And I believe 12 out of the 13 demanded that uh, anyone being elected into office before they could begin begin to serve, they had to agree. Uh, basic confessions. I believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God. I believe in the Trinity and the deity of Jesus or something like that. They had a lot of variation there, but what we're talking about is not a radical thing. Our forefathers, uh, before they ratified the Constitution, our forefathers understood that these are important issues. And I think you you touched on something. There's There's not a whole bunch of moral standards out there. Like you can pick and choose which moral standard you want to that you want to go with. You're either going to be under the commands of God as revealed in both testaments of the of the Bible. You're either under God's law or you're going to be under man's law. There's no other options. And man's law always results in tyranny because it always deviates at some point from what God has established as justice. Yeah, I tend to agree with that, too. And this is part of the thing that I bring up um, when we talk about um, issues of the prison system and the injustice that's there. We're no longer we're now willy nilly putting people in jail um, for things that God doesn't even call crimes. Um, We're we're having people who steal stuff who never restore to the person they stole to, but somehow they owe time to quote unquote society to pay their debt or whatever that's supposed to be. I don't even, because they don't owe a debt to society. They owe a debt to the person they stole from. And so we've, yeah, we've made these crimes and then we've, we've formed our own man-made system. And as I was trying to think of who said it, uh, but you were, you were touching on it. And that is, we're either going to follow God's Ten Commandments, or we're going to end up following man's 10,000 commandments. And so, isn't it a lot easier to keep up with 10 than 10,000 and not know when you've broken the law and then get thrown in jail for, I don't know, you didn't pay a parking ticket you had or whatever. I mean, just some of the, the, the major injustice that goes on. We have people who murder people. We have people who kidnap people. We have people who rape people. And they're not given a death penalty, a swift action. And look, I'm I'm one for being very careful in that because the Bible says you have to have two or three witnesses that confirm the matter or the person is confessing. 
And if that happens, you ain't waiting around 25 years to off that guy. And it's not done in a back room. This is something that's lost, too. We used to have public hangings and things of that nature in this in this country. And people think, well, that's barbaric. Well, no, this was justice. And the Bible tells us that when those things happen uh, on, what, 10 or 12 things that were considered capital crimes, the community was to partake in it because it was a horrific thing to partake in so that everybody learned to fear. And the obvious implication is they fear God because God has said this is the judgment that comes upon such crimes. And we've we've pretty much negated that, haven't we? Yeah. And if I could go back just a second, uh, you mentioned the fact that a lot of a lot of the opposition to us kind of requiring that government should obey the laws of God. A lot of that comes from believing Christians. And my my theory on that is, uh, and I, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on anyone, but for a long time, it's been a very popular teaching in the United States that there's something uh, deficient, there's something imperfect, there's something barbaric about the law of God. And this is just extremely contrary to everything that even the New Testament says about the law of God. The New Testament says that the Old Testament is holy and just and spiritual and perfect. And uh, But in a lot of our churches, we've had this kind of prevalent teaching that the law of God is scary, and it's, like you said, it's harsh or it's barbaric. Frankly, I think that a lot of Christians are, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but there's a lot of ignorance about what the Old Testament actually says within the corporate church in America. There's not a lot of Christians who are very familiar with the law of God. And frankly, I think they've bought into some propaganda that tells them that Sharia law of the Muslims has something in common with the law that we got through Moses. And that if you're terrified to death of living under Sharia, you should be just as scared as living under Moses. But the New Testament calls the law of Moses the law of liberty. And I'm convinced that if if our government was trying to govern under the principles that we find in the law of God, we would find government to nearly, very nearly disappear in our lives. I'm convinced you could, it wouldn't be an unusual thing for someone to be born, live their whole lives and die at an old age without ever having to interact with a government agent for their entire lives. And uh, a lot of people are scared by that. But this idea that that obeying the law of God is going to bring on some kind of Christian Taliban or something like it's just ridiculous. There's government under the law of God kind of just uh, disappears for the most part. You know, you have a appeals court system of judges, but you don't have police. You don't have religious police. You don't have people peeking in your bedroom window to see if you're doing things the right way. None of that. It's, it's a really radical form of liberty that's preached by the law of God. And uh, I just think it's a tragedy that a lot of Christians have been taught to fear it and to think that it's the law of God that's the tyrant that you need to watch out for. Uh, the law of God is tyranny. Uh, that it, That's what everybody believes. But I'm saying it's the opposite. The law of God is freedom. And the only other option is tyranny. And you're going to get it when you. Like you said, you uh, deny God's small amount of commandments, you're going to get this giant 
uh, mountain of man's commandments. Yeah, and his twisted punishments that go with it, they're not just punishments at all. In fact, they are, they're unjust to the criminal, and they're unjust to his victims and everybody else around. I mean, when somebody goes to jail, uh, to a, let's say they, to, a, to a federal penitentiary, most people don't understand. All the states end up chucking in to take care of that guy. Three hots and a cot for however many years he's up, paying for his clothes, his hot water shower that he's got. Um, you know, whatever video game he's going to play, the weights that he uses, they're going to pay for all of that stuff. And so is his victims and the victims' families. And so then they're going to take and hold your property hostage, and they're going to threaten you to throw you in there with him if you don't pay those taxes. And so the people don't understand what's come on. And you mentioned the Christian Taliban. I had somebody say that about me because I simply promoted the law of God. So I took an article and I said, okay, let's look at these things. If you steal something in an Islamic culture, what do they do? Well, they cut your hand off. Now, how is that helpful to you or to the society? It makes you dependent upon somebody else. When you're in American culture, they throw you in jail, and they charge all your neighbors to keep you up for however long they're going to throw you in jail. But when when you live under the law of God, what happens when you steal something? Well, it's a civil matter. You come there before a judge with the person you stole from, And the judge renders a judgment against you, and he says, you're going to pay back what you stole plus 20% or plus double, whatever the case. And if you can't pay that, then you're going to go serve that person till you work it off. And so it was a way where you kept the person's dignity. You didn't throw them in an 8 by 8 cage, but you kept their dignity. You allowed them to restore to the person they stole from, not the state, which is how the state, they want to get in and get their, you know, take on it there it's like organized crime is what how things are now so there's a tremendous difference between sharia even what we have in u.s law now and christian law what the bible has laid out for us and uh and i think uh as bradley says so aptly justice guards our liberty and the reason we're losing our liberties is because we're not bringing justice amen amen I couldn't agree with more with that. Uh, there is one more point. I don't know how much time we have. There is one more yep, point. You got, that you I got like 12 minutes. Knock yourself out. Okay. In Romans 13, verses 1 and 5, in the translation I'm looking at, you run into the phrase, be in subjection or be submitted. I just want to point out, if we understood what the underlying Greek word there was, it would really kind of disarm the whole text when tyrants try to use it to put you in slavery because behind that phrase be in subjection it's a greek word hupotasso hupotasso uh you can kind of hear two halves to that hupo and tasso tasso is the root from which we get our term taxonomy and i know that sounds fancy and all that but a taxonomy is just an orderly list that you make and hoopo means under or roughly it means under to put under and so when when hoopo tasso is used what we're being told to do there is to mentally be willing to see that my name belongs under somebody else's name on a list of delegated authorities and if my name is under somebody else's name and that person gives me a command that is not sinful and doesn't require anything 
uh, antichrist or anything like that, then I'm supposed to be cheerfully, happily willing to become a servant to that person for the sake of glorifying Christ. And that's very important. Hupotasso means a cheerful willingness to see myself under some other delegated authority. The child is under his parents. The wife is supposed to be willing to see her name under her husband's name. The church member is supposed to see the elder's name a little bit higher on the list. And the citizen's name is supposed to be willing to see the magistrate's name a little bit higher on the list. And because of that, then I agree. If your name is higher than mine on the list, you have some kind of right to give me an order if you need to give me an order. And I will do my best under Christ to obey every law that I can. That is so much different than how the modern church sees this text. When the Bible says be in subjection, so many people assume that what that means is just do what you're told. And this is not what hupotasso means in the rest of the New Testament. In the rest of the New Testament, hupotasso clearly means that even though I'm willing to see your name above mine, and therefore I'm willing to obey a lawful order, I still have to decide in my head whether that, that order is obedient to Christ or is it antichrist. And just because your name is higher than mine doesn't mean I now have to obey Antichrist orders. In fact, it's very much the opposite. My first subjection is to the name that's at the top of the list, which is Jesus, the name above every name on every list, right? So uh, there's no power but from God and all power descends from God. So Christ is at the top. My first subjection is to him. Now, under him, a lesser authority gives a lawful order. Fine. I don't have a problem with that. I'm not a rebel. I'm not an insurrectionist. If your name really is above mine, I'll, I'll obey your lawful order. That's fine. But I still I have the right and the duty under the Lordship of Christ to examine everything that I'm told. And I, I, that's so much different than just shut up and do what you're told, which is, how every tyrant and every slave reads this passage. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up. In fact, uh, you know, when we let's take a moment here, we're in a situation where, in my opinion, we're being lied to about what's going on in our country uh, regarding coronavirus and COVID nineteen and where it comes from and all this other stuff. And I've I, I've done enough interviews and research on it myself to know that we're being lied to about it. We're just, it's just flat out lying. Whether the people are ignorant who are sharing the information or whether they're doing it deliberately, they're lying. And in the process of that, they're infringing upon the rights. Now, I stress to people something you just said. You have the right and the duty. And so I, these go hand in hand because most people say rights like it's I don't know what they're thinking about it. Rights like they can do whatever they want. But rights are really liberties or authorities that we're given as individuals. And the reason we're given those liberties is so that we can fulfill the duties, the things that you just spoke of a moment ago. So I have a right to keep and bear arms. Why? Because I have a duty to protect my family and those around me. And to, and as it's said in the Second Amendment, to secure a free state or a, a free area around us. So when, when we have those things, they, they work together. Um, part of the issue that I, that I think people get lost in, they want to talk about their rights 
but they don't want to fulfill their duties. And when they don't fulfill their duties, then what happens when you have governors who tell you you can't go anywhere? I don't know where we're getting the feedback here, but I'm going to turn it back over to you. What do we do when we have governors who say, well, we know what's best for you and you can do this, that and the other in violation. They're wanting to quarantine people in violation of even what God teaches in Leviticus 13. Um, they're wanting to do that. Is that an area to where we speak out and say, uh, no, no, you've just went way beyond where you should be going? Yeah, I absolutely think you're on the right track here. In fact, I hope this doesn't make me sound too wimpy, but I think our forefathers and people who gave deep thought to these things would even advocate we're, we as Christian people, we're willing to bend over backwards. We're not going to take up arms and start uh, stringing people up for minor violations of our rights. We're not so married to our rights that we're going to just become murderers for the sake of defending. You know, we don't have a white knuckle grip on our rights. We're willing for a time and for the sake of serving Christ to give up our rights. and. Uh, and uh, act like we don't have them for a time. But see, the thing is, I've taken a little bit of a stand against those sorts of unjustors that you're talking about here in my town. I don't want to draw a lot of attention to but I just have to mention that part of the feedback I get is people saying, oh, well, you're just, you're just thumping your chest and you're just trying to poke the bear and, and bring attention to yourself and it's a publicity thing. And if you loved your neighbor, you'd be willing to give up your rights for the sake of protecting your neighbor. And my point is, you know what? I'm willing to give up my rights, but I'm taking a stand right here and right now because there are people coming after me. And it's their rights that I'm speaking up for. I've got, I've got three daughters, and Lord willing, I'll have a whole parcel of grandkids one day. They're the ones I'm taking a stand for. I do, I want peace. If I could stay in my little house and not say anything and just put my head down and make it through the storm, I'll be honest with you, that's my natural inclination. But I don't feel like I can remain silent. And it's not because I'm so greedy for what I think is mine. It's greedy for what I know God has given to the people that I love. And I'm zealous to defend them. Uh, don't tell me you baby killers in Santa Fe, New Mexico, you have no right to tell me what it means to love my neighbor. And don't tell me that I'm being some kind of fanatic for standing up for my rights. If somebody doesn't take a stand right now, the, the ones coming after us are not going to have anything left. It's been given to us to take a stand and to defend the freedoms that we've been given, both as Christians and as Americans. Because it, what's going to happen after this? How many months of lockdown do you think we really have before there's riots, before uh, there's martial law? We don't have a lot of time here. And if the people of God take this moment off for the sake of maintaining their own peace and their own comfort, it's our children and those coming after them even that are going to suffer. Uh, I can't. I would rather be peaceful and quiet and just let it all flow over my head. But I have a responsibility to those coming after me. Yeah, I, those are good words, Gordon. Those are real yeah. good words. In fact, they, you know, our forefathers talked about uh, posterity, that we that we set up these things yeah. for posterity. 
And uh, you were talking about being at peace. Man, all of us want to, uh, we want people to like us. We want to be at peace with people. In fact, just before the passage that we're talking about in Romans 13, there's Romans 12, 18, right? It says, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And so when we take a stand and we say, it's not just, and, and I think this is the thing. Going to church is the simple part. When they say you can't go and meet with these people, and I'm getting a little feedback from you. I don't know if it's coming through the speakers or whatever. <clears throat> I think that's what has been going on that I've been hearing. But the but the thing is, is that going to church, when you're told by a governor, well, you can't meet with the people of God. Well, that's a clear violation. Uh, you know, people ought to say, well, wait a minute. God has said this. We ought to be like Peter and John and say, you judge um, because we're going to obey God, and it's it's the right thing to do. But then you have the issue of um, where you're where you're you're going to do that. But it's in other things too. It's in the thing of state. I don't want to be dependent upon you because you say that I'm endangering somebody without any evidence to show us that we're endangering anybody. There needs to be a move to where people like we had Ben McClintock on on Monday from defending Utah. He says we just went out and had picnics on the Capitol grounds. We didn't go out there with guns. We, we weren't thumbing our nose. We just went and had a picnic with the family, with some friends. Um, we showed them we're going to do what we're going to do because we're free people. And, um, and then people opening up their businesses. And if people want to stay home because they're scared of a virus, which you can't transfer to anybody, but they're, they're scared to be sick or they're, they're feeble in some way or whatever the case may be, they're free to, to stay at home and do those things. But if, if you're not, if you want to live your life, then you have the freedom to go out and you have the freedom to intermingle with other people. You're not putting anybody's life in danger. This is ridiculous what we're, face, what we're facing. And it's, it's really shutting down our life. It's shutting down our, our camaraderie. It's shutting down community. It's shutting down who we are as a people. You got about 30 seconds. Make them count, man. Okay, I, I oh you've hit the mute button. Sorry about that. You let me unmute you. Okay, go ahead. Twenty seconds. I was just I, I was just gonna say I can't add anything to that. I think we all fantasize about what would happen if we're surrounded by tyrants and if we're really confronted. I don't want to have to meet up with my forefathers and be ashamed. I don't want to have to meet the Lord and be ashamed. I agree. I agree. Those are good words, folks. You can check out. Gordon's book, Resistance to Tyrants, Romans 13, and The Christian Duty to Oppose Wicked Rulers. We're going to have the link on the archive later on this morning. Thank you guys for joining us. Gordon, thank you for your time too, brother. We appreciate you very much. Twenty, Well, not 23 hours. It's going to be the weekend. Have a great Lord's Day. See ya.